Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 36. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all the deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, blind, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Father, we want to look into your word this morning and to hear from you. We know that there are many truths in your scriptures and many teachings, some of which are hard to hear. And I know that even hearing those words read this morning, these woes to leadership, the woes to the temple, the woes to the church, that they resonate with us. And I pray that this morning we would consider them, consider what you have to say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I want to take a few minutes, hopefully you jotted down some uh, woes to the church. Um, You heard, read, Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus proclaims seven woes on the leadership of the temple, on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and really, in many ways, declaring it to the church of today. And so, I wanted to take just a few minutes to have you kind of quote back to me some of the woes that you would ascribe to the church of today. I'll give you an example to start out in case you're curious. Here's one of my woes to the American church. I recently found out they did a a survey on the resources that churches spend uh, to put on services, to have staff, to have buildings, to do building campaigns. And then they did a survey on the number of baptisms that have happened where someone has come to know Christ and then uh, proceeded in the uh, act of baptism. And they figured it out, and over the last couple years, the American church has averaged $1.5 million per baptism. So $1.5 million spent on buildings and churches and, you know, staffing and coffee and whatever else the church needs to function. $1.5 $1.5 million per baptism. So I would say, woe to the American church for perhaps not putting its priorities where they belong. Instead of spending $1.5 million, maybe shifting its focus a little bit. You tell me, what are some other woes? Woe to the American church for what? Okay, absolutely. We hurt one another when, in fact, we're supposed to be known as people who love. Good. What else? Yeah, if you didn't hear that, what do you, the American church, we draw lines in the sand and declare you in and them out? Yeah, absolutely. These aren't necessarily easy to hear, but give us some more woes to the American church. Mm. Your busy lives don't allow any time for my spirit to move. Good. Lukewarm, just enough Jesus to get us in, but not enough to change the world. What else? Letting society dictate how the church should operate and function. 
Here's another one from me. Woe to the Church of America for being the most segregated hour in America. More than businesses, more than sports, more than companies, more than anything else, we are a segregated people from about 9 until noon every Sunday morning. Any others? Bringing the kingdom to bear in your living rooms and not in the world. Good, we'll finish with one more here. The faith and conviction of the world and the way they live out their ideals probably puts to shame the faith and conviction of our own lives and the way we live it out. Some of us have probably been wanting to express woes to the American church for quite some time. This is a little opportunity to do it. But in many ways, it's a cathartic experience, I think, for us to begin to confess that we as the Church of America in many ways need certain woes, condemnations spoken toward us. And what's challenging whenever you read this particular passage and whenever you say the things that we've heard echoed here this morning is that as much as we want to say woe to the American church at large, every time we make one of those statements, in reality, we are the church. And they come to bear a little bit on who we are. Maybe we're bringing the kingdom to bear in our living rooms and not in the world. Maybe we're not living out with conviction and we're being lukewarm or we're finding ways to really minimize the very calling that God has given us and instead living into culture and society. And the list can go on and on. And it really is, if we're honest, self-incriminating a bit. That we read these woes and we hear what Jesus says and, and we're challenged by it. We should be at least. And this is a passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning that many people have actually wanted to pull out of the Bible. They've said that, you know, this passage of Scripture doesn't sound like Jesus very much. He's, he's nice, he's kind. You know, he's, it's not the picture of Jesus that's like laid back, talking, breaking bread and wine, hair flowing in the wind, the kind of Jesus, right? It, it, this is like in your face, I don't like what you have to say, I don't like the way you're living, I don't like what's going on, and I've got to declare to you, woe to you. You hypocrites for living this way. And so we kind of sit back and go, man, I, I don't know about this passage this morning. And what I want to do this morning is consider the woes and how they actually uh, speak into our lives a little bit. Now, these were originally directed at the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the time. But in many ways, they're directed toward us, the church. Post-cross, he really would be speaking these same things to us. And so this morning, really, in my mind, is all about examination. And here's what I want you to examine. I want you to consider this question. Is my heart beating more and more like God's? Is my heart beating more and more like God's? Am I living the kind of life where my heart beats more like His every day? What I mean by that is that the rhythms of our heart begin to beat in unison. The very things that he cares about, I care about. That we have the same values, the same interests, the same callings, the same pursuits. Is my heart in line with the very heart of Jesus? Am I living that kingdom kind of life? And so we're looking at this, evaluating this out of Matthew 23. If you haven't turned there already, you can turn to Matthew 23 now. 
And like I said, Jesus is speaking to a very religious audience. This is his final uh, speech or sermon to um, all of his followers before the cross. This is the beginning of that sermon where he begins to lay out some of the, the final things that he wants to communicate um, before he makes his way toward Jerusalem and ends up on the cross and then the resurrection, meets with his followers again and then ascends to heaven. And so he's really meeting with the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's meeting with the temple officials. The disciples are there. If we were to put it in our context today, he's meeting with theology students, religious studies majors, students that go to Christian colleges, those of us that go to the church on a regular basis, are involved in group life. He's speaking this to us. And he starts off this sermon by declaring some important things. And what I want to do is just highlight two of them this morning. So we're just going to focus all of our attention on two primary things. The first one is this. Jesus chides them for putting the insignificant over the significant. They put the insignificant over the significant. If you look in your Bible, verses 23 and 24 say this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He says to him, listen, what you are doing is you are magnifying the insignificant and minimizing the significant. Or another way of saying it is you're, all those things that are supposed to be major things in your life, you're diminishing them. You're putting them low on the priority scale. And all those things that are kind of fringe, side, minor, small, lesser kinds of issues, you've begun to, for some reason, highlight Make those significant. Put all the weight on those kinds of things. To give you a little bit of the background on the passage, I think it helps us to understand a little bit of the religious system of the day. What they would often do is they would tithe. It's a standard Old Testament practice where they would bring 10% of what they earned throughout the year, 10% of what God provided for them, and they would give it back to the temple as an offering. And so they started off with a pretty simple system, and they would take their resources, and they would offer those back to the temple at 10%. And then they started looking around and going, well, if you're given 10%, and you're given 10 and I'm given 10 then we're all equal. So I kind of don't like that. I want to be a little bit better than you. And so what I'll do is I'll figure out a way to give more. One of the things they were required to give, even in the Old Testament, is to tithe a tenth of some of their food. They were specifically supposed to tithe their corn, their wine, and their oil. So the crops that they would gather, then their oil and wine, were, they were also supposed to tithe the 10%. But some religious leaders started going, well, let me figure out ways to actually do more. Let me figure out how to like show how religious I am. And so they would start tithing everything. And Jesus says, listen, you got to the point where you're walking up 
and you're dropping off a tenth of your dill, a tenth of your cumin, and it'd be like a tenth of your paprika, your fennel seeds, whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're putting on, you know, your basil, you're just, you're just going a tenth of everything. I mean, picture that. That just seems ridiculous. And yet they were walking up and they were doing that. And he says, you're following through with the minute details. You're going above and beyond what you're supposed to be doing even. But you've neglected some of the most important things. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He describes three things that directly come from Micah 6.8. Back in Micah 6.8 it says, He has shown you, O man, God is speaking, He's shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Jesus repeats that very same teaching. He says it's justice. Justice is concrete, active justice. It's not this abstract thinking. It's not this idea that, oh yeah, justice would be good for everyone. It's actually putting flesh to it. It's living it out. It's being active in it. Getting your hands dirty in restorative justice. Mercy. Mercy is love and forgiveness and kindness. It's the whole teaching of Jesus when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. The way you treat one another and act. The final one is faithfulness or a real faith. Our very lives are supposed to be expressions of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. That we're actually living out in obedience His teachings. That we're following His commands and walking close with Him. Jesus is saying, those are the most important things and you've begun to neglect those. Now what's interesting is, Jesus doesn't say the problem is that you're not doing enough. He doesn't come and say, hey, you're you're just not doing enough in all of your religious activity. He doesn't even say, you're doing too much. Like you're going so far above and beyond, you're doing too much. In fact, he also doesn't even say that what you're doing when you're going out of your way to do more is horrible. He doesn't condemn that practice at all. Here's what I think Jesus is communicating the most to the Pharisees at the time and to us today is that we're actually doing too little of the things that really matter. We're doing too little of the things that really matter. I was in a conversation, this was several years ago, with a good friend of mine, and we were sitting around talking about what are our greatest fears in life. There's a group of four or five of us, and just kind of sharing, man, this is something that I'm fearful of. We kind of went around the room. It came to this one guy, and he made this statement. My greatest fear in life is that I will be highly successful at that which does not matter. That when I get to the end of my life, people will look at me and go, man, he seems to be a success. He's, he's got a beautiful house. In fact, he just upgraded to a nicer one. He's got great cars. He's had all the promotions. He's got a good 401k plan. He's got all of his ducks in a row. He seems fine and upstanding. Hasn't done anything horrible in society. Good life, right? 
And yet to recognize that perhaps, as he was saying, my greatest fear is that I'll have the things the world would end up saying, success. And I would realize the things that truly matter, I've failed in. That I've neglected the most important. I've missed out on what I was truly called to do. Really, what he's saying is, I'm fearful that I'll strain the gnat and swallow the camel. Now, some of you go, what the heck does that mean, right? What do you mean, strain the gnat and swallow the camel? Let me give you a little more historical understanding of this passage. There are certain animals that the... um, back as they were trying to maintain ritual cleanliness, there were certain animals that would make you ceremonially unclean. You'd have to have a certain time where you couldn't go to the temple. Uh, if you ate them, touched them, there are certain foods that you were not allowed to eat. And so the smallest unclean animal was considered a gnat. Couldn't eat a gnat. Not that you'd want to. But you, you couldn't or you'd be ceremonially unclean. The largest unclean animal is a camel. Now, historians tell us that what would often happen is they would sit down for dinner, they'd set their wine glass out, they'd be having dinner, and then in the wine glass, in a warmer, humid climate, gnats would kind of find their way and hang out around the wine glass. In fact, some would even fall into the wine and just kind of float there. It's kind of gross. But what they would do is they were so meticulous as to not to be ceremonially unclean that when they would drink the wine, they would grit grit their teeth closed. This is going to be gross. Drink through their teeth to strain the gnats, pick out the gnats, and throw them away so as not to be ceremonially unclean. They would go to great lengths to make sure they remain clean. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you're straining the gnat with your teeth, or you're straining it by pouring it into another cup on on the cloth so it drips through slowly, so that all the gnats are on the top. You're going through all of these measures to be clean. And all the while, you're shoving this gigantic, camel down your throat. I mean, it's a crazy word picture. The largest of all unclean animals, someone's just like pulling back your mouth and shoving it in. Because you're missing it. You're totally missing the point. You've got it all mixed up. You're taking great pains on all the minor issues and missing all the major ones. They've placed the insignificant at the highest point, and the significant they've ignored. So my question is this, how are we doing this? How are you or I doing this? This week, I want to challenge you, as you get into groups, as you spend time with people, ask this question at group. Talk about this, wrestle with this. How is it that you and I are straining gnats and at the same time swallowing camels? I'll give you an illustration from me this week. I was uh, walking downtown. I 
have a policy to try to never be late to any meeting. I hate when I'm late. And so I'm on my way. I've got just a couple minutes left, and I'll be right on time. It'll be fine. I'll be a couple minutes early. And as I'm walking, I've got a quick pace. I'm moving. I'm downtown, and someone comes up to me right out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it, and they start to ask me a question. I don't even wait to hear the question. I'm on a mission. i got religious things to do, right? i got to go have a religious meeting. And I just, I, uh, and I kept going. I, it's been years that I can recall having walked past anybody. If someone up on, comes up on the street and asks a question, I'm going to engage in a conversation. I'm going to talk. I'm going to, if, if I can meet a need, I'll meet a need. If it's about something else, if it's someone needing directions, if it's, just somebody listening. But I, that day, strained gnats and swallowed camels. I completely ignored someone who probably needed a listening ear to get on with activities. I think sometimes we strain gnats and swallow camels. I'll give you a couple other illustrations, and then you guys can come up with hundreds more. I think sometimes we get caught up in going just through the motions of religion, making sure that I read my Bible, making sure that I went to group or went to service or did something like that, and then all the while, needs in our community. This whole do justice, love mercy piece is actually, tangibly, meet needs of people around you. I was talking to Global Neighborhood just this last week. They have 50 refugee families who've filled out an application and are waiting to be paired up with someone who will spend a couple hours every week, every other week, helping them to adjust to culture here. 50 are waiting, and we have zero volunteers. I think sometimes we strain the gnat and swallow the camel. Another illustration is just talking to a couple girls this last week where they were challenged with, man, what about adoption? What about orphan care? What about the foster system? I mean, there are hundreds of kids just waiting for a home. And we find ourselves sometimes, I think, sitting back and going, well, it'll be taken care of. So this week, in small group, talk about it more. What are ways that we are actually magnifying the insignificant and minimizing the significant. The second thing Jesus speaks to in the next couple of verses is he talks about the idea of the external over the internal. So the insignificant over the significant, this time the external over the internal. Look in verses 25 and 26 with me. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He gives another descriptor, very similar, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is saying, 
You're highlighting the external over the internal. You're more concerned with the outward appearance than you are with inward obedience. You've placed the priority on outward appearance instead of inward obedience. And Jesus uses two illustrations in this particular passage related to this idea. The first one is the cup or dish. He says, basically, you have a cup, a mug. On the outside, it looks clean, it looks nice. But if you were to look on the inside, it's just gritty. It's nasty. It didn't get washed out right. Maybe you've left stuff in there for a while. It's gotten old. It's crusted on the side. So you've got this cup that looks great on the outside, but looks horrible on the inside. It's a pretty simple illustration. I mean, it's what I think oftentimes we do in our bedrooms. If someone were to walk into our bedroom, they'd go, wow, it looks really nice in here. But if they looked under the bed and in the closets and in the drawers, they'd get a totally different picture, right? So it's this outwardly it appears one thing, inwardly quite different. Well, then he uses this second one. He says, some of you appear as whitewashed tombs on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death. You're dead. Dead men's bones is found there. It's an interesting illustration. Again, it comes back to this idea of being ceremonially clean. So on the way to Passover, people would travel great distance to get to the temple. One of the things that would be unfortunate for you as a traveler is if you happened to walk on a grave, over a grave, touch a gravestone, because you've touched something that's touching someone who's dead, you'd be ceremonially unclean for about a week in general. So you'd miss all of Passover. So basically you're on your way, you step on the wrong thing, you might as well turn around and head home because you're not going to the temple, you're not offering any sacrifices, you're not spending any time praying there, you're kind of At that point, it's a done deal. So, what they would do is, prior to the travel season for people coming for the Passover, is they would go out into all of the area surrounding, and they would do one of two things to all the tombs. They would either clean them, whitewash them, get them all nice, get all the dirt off, all the mud, if there are things growing up over over the tombstones, they'd clear that off. Or, if they were super conscious, what they would do is take white paint, essentially, and paint the tombstone so that you could see it from quite a ways away and you would avoid it. You'd just walk around and take another path. So again, they would go to great pains to paint up or clean the outside, to make the outside of the cup or dish look good. The outside of the tomb looks white and beautiful from a distance. But he said inside, it's a completely different thing. Inside, there's dying, there's death. He describes it with several different words. Where he says, you have, verse uh, 25, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then down in verse 28, hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's how he describes the inside of the cup or dish, the inside of the life as opposed to the outside. See, the passage was communicating from the beginning, if you look in the early verses of chapter 23, that everything is about what it's like to be seen in public. He said that the Pharisees would put on these large robes, 
They would make sure that the tassels were extra long. They only needed to be a certain length, but if I have longer ones, it must be better. They would want to be in the most honorable seats. They would want to sit in public places of authority. They would want people to call them rabbi, essentially making sure they had titles. I want people to call me by the titles or the degrees or the things that I've earned. And so they begin to draw more and more attention to themselves. It's all about decorating the outside. It's impressions, it's smoke and mirrors, it's facades. I think sometimes we do the same. We want to make the outside look a particular way to make the inside get ignored. Find ways to kind of push down maybe what, what's in and try to paint this picture that it looks like I've got everything together. I'm in a good place. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes it's not reality. So again, this week, ask the question, how are we doing this? Are there times where I'm prioritizing the external over the internal? Am I somehow trying to earn favor on the outside and I'm neglecting the internal, dealing with the things that really matter, dealing with inward obedience, dealing with emotions. I think the church, as we were describing earlier, there's certain woes or condemnations we bring. I think sometimes the church is more concerned right now with our PR. We need to hire like a PR firm just to kind of like shape things up on the outside. We kind of look good, but... In reality, we should be the living, breathing hands and feet and body of Jesus in the world. That's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do all the time. You don't need a PR firm for that. You don't need to brush over areas that look kind of externally weird. If, if internally you are changed and internally we are moving out and making a huge difference in our community, in our world, there doesn't need to be us having these woes, because people would go, well, that might be part of the church, but it's not the church I know. Because we've decided to prioritize the internal over the external. So this morning, Jesus offers these woes. He says you've prioritized the insignificant over the significant, you've prioritized the external over the internal, and really it should be the complete Opposite, And so my challenge to you and my challenge to myself this morning is this. Some of us need to read through this list. Some of us need to hear the challenge about the significant and the internal. And we need to enter into a period where we just examine, God, what are the ways that I am being a hypocrite? Anytime you see words repeated in Scripture again and again and again, he's trying to make a point. And it's clear what the point is, right? That sometimes we find ourselves in these very places. And so perhaps it's a time for us to examine, to say, God, where are the areas in my life where I've begun to do that? And help me to change my priorities. Help me to change the direction. Help me to repent. Repentance is all about going one way and then turning course and going the other way, right? 
So that's the first thing. And then some of us, what we need to hear is grace. That the truth of the gospel is this. That Jesus, at one moment, can say, Woe to you for living this way. It is not how you were created. It is not how it's intended to be. And then several days later, he goes to the cross. He's hung up on a tree, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, essentially, all the woes that I speak toward the church, I now take on me. And some of us just need to be reminded again that regardless of where things are at, that repentance is needed, but repentance comes with grace. And that as we take communion this morning, we can be reminded to examine, to really ask ourselves the question, God, am I living the kingdom kind of life? Is my heart beating with the very beats that you have? the very cares and desires and hopes and dreams. And if not, God, help me to realign that. And then again, as we take communion, just be reminded that it is grace that we receive, that it is His goodness, it is the good news of Jesus who took our place on our behalf so that we might have freedom. And celebrate that. It's about remembering and celebrating together. Let's pray.